So they've gone to war in a ladder. Yeah, pretty ropey one. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we've got a double Navy escape. Yes, we do. More Navy men. We've got Sub-Lieutenant Dennis Keller of HMS Saunders, and we've got Lieutenant Stuart William Lennox Campbell of HMS St. Angelo. Two very different captures, Yeah, but work together later on, as we'll see. And some interesting background. Yeah. Should we look at Kelleher first? Yes. Okay. So Kelleher was born in November 1918 in Dungarvan, which is near Waterford in Ireland. But he became a resident of Coolsdon. Not quite sure when, but he wasn't a particularly old man when he was captured. So Coolsdon in Surrey. In Coolsdon in Surrey. Yeah. That's right. Peacetime, he was he was working for the waterboard. That was his job. But mm-hmm. he seemed to have a hobby, kicking footballs around or something like something that. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Apparently, he's fairly well known for playing for Barnet as an amateur. From the 1930s, actually, and quite a number of times, but... I think stretching a bit to claim that you are well-known and play for Barnet. We did look up his um, scoring record, and it is pretty impressive. He's got a rough scoring record of two and three. What I did see was he played for Barnet 358 times and was there for nearly 20 years before and after the war. So he represented his country, and he actually represented his country before the war, saying that. So he he represented Ireland eight times uh, during 1938 and 1939 before he actually joined the Navy in March of 1939. Now, his capture, he details it a little bit in his report, and it seems quite chaotic. And that's generally because his capture occurs during effectively the fall of Tobruk, which was the the second battle of Tobruk, which ran from 17th to the 21st of June 1942. Now, we have covered the first battle of Tobruk, which is otherwise known as the Siege of Tobruk, which Mm. was an eight-month siege of the town by the Germans during 1941. I don't think we've done anything on the second battle, so I'll I'll cover a little bit here, even if it's just as a refresher. But effectively, following that eight-month siege, the German forces that had laid siege were actually relieved in December and replaced by fresh, clean troops. Whilst the Allies, they stockpiled massive amounts of reserves around the port. I mean, it had been quite symbolic, this struggle to hold to Brooks. So Churchill saw it as quite an important thing. But the war was changing. Desert war was always moving. The Desert Air Force actually ended up moving effectively into Egypt, which became effectively beyond the useful range of defending Tobruk. So it was a matter of time before things were going to go wrong. The garrison itself ended up being refreshed with new troops who were basically fairly inexperienced. And uh, because, again, they were trying to hold the position quite a lot, I think something near a third of them were non-combatant support troops, effectively. So there wasn't a huge amount of experienced manpower there, but they did strengthen the defences around the east and around the west. Port laid to the east and where they laid up most of the supplies. But unfortunately, there was a weak point that the Germans had discovered in the eastern defensive perimeter. So they were able to attack into there. They effectively captured the port cut off the supplies to those that were defending the western side and there are many factors but through in particular issues with communication between the higher powers and things like this the fall of Tobruk became the second largest capitulation of the British army after the fall of Singapore so it was not 
a good time, as we will see from Keller's report. So he starts off by saying, on the 21st of June 1942, all ships other than small landing craft were sent out of Tobruk Harbour. At 4.30 in the afternoon on that day, I was sent to an embarkation jetty in Tobruk and told to await orders. At 6.30 in the evening, the Germans entered the town with tanks and opened fire on all ships in the harbour. All service personnel in the area boarded the available ships. I was in a small tank landing craft and within a few minutes of embarking, the engine was hit and the craft set on fire. We drifted around the harbour for some time, but being unable to control the craft, we abandoned ship. I got into a small boat, which was immediately upset. I swam ashore and reached land about 9.30 in the evening. All that night we collected wounded and the following morning, on the, which was the 22nd of June, I was captured by the Africa Corps. So it sounds quite chaotic, mm. really does. He then goes on to say, I was sent to Debrook Aerodrome, where there were about 45,000 prisoners of war. Now, I haven't managed to verify that. The number goes from as low as 30,000 up mm. to 40,000, but a significant number of captured personnel that the Germans now have to deal with. And he says he remained there for three days. He was then sent to Italy via a number of camps, including Timini and Benghazi, which we've, we've covered before. And he ends up in Bari, the transit camp, in the July. And then he seems he moves around quite a bit over fairly short periods because he was to leave again in August of 1942 for Campo 21 Chieti. And he stays there until April 43 before being moved on to Campo 35 Padula. And then in July of 43, he goes to Campo 19 in Bologna, where he stays until September 1943. So no escape attempts up until then, no sign that he wants to get out. And he's probably actually after the chaos of his capture, he's looking to take a bit of a rest, one would have thought. So that's Keller. So I think we'll have a look at Campbell. Yes, so Lieutenant Stuart William Lennox Campbell was born in May 1921. He was from Westcliff-on-Sea in Essex, and he was a student. So he already had a short service commission, which obviously with the outbreak of war was effectively cancelled, and he was not given an ultimatum, so to speak, but he had two options. He could either join up there and then, uh, or he could wait for his call-up papers, and he decided he was going to join up. Now, he got passed around a bit. He joined up as a seaman, and he ended up being put on a number of little boats sent out to India, and he ended up in Egypt, but he ended up being selected to learn to fly and join the fleet air arm. So he ends up, long story short, flying something called a swordfish. Now, a swordfish is a mightily impressive aeroplane today for the fact that you look at it and think people went to war in that because it's very much, it's like a First World War biplane on massive steroids for its sheer physical size, but not its power, which was one of the major issues with it. And the fact that people go to war, I mean, if you met a swordfish pilot today and you were wearing a hat, take it off. The thing, it had a purpose. The purpose was basically you could put a great big torpedo underneath it and you could fly it off a ship because it flew incredibly slow. So it was great for operating off of ships, but that's incredibly bad for people shooting at it because it's incredibly slow. Now, it served that purpose, but obviously, I mean, I've done some work on statistical losses for various units and things like that. And unfortunately, if you were to join a unit and the likelihood there was that you're not going to survive the war, it would be a swordfish-equipped torpedo bomber squadron operating off of a carrier. I mean, you are talking dangerous in, in many different ways. And in particular instance, if you want to have an idea about going to war in a swordfish, you normally had a crew of three. Pilot, obviously, to fly it. An air gunner to defend it, which was a gun in the back. And it would normally have a navigator stroke wireless operator. The equipment that it carried was fairly basic, so it didn't really have proper radio. It had morse. So you sent Morse to the other aeroplanes or you flashed a light at them. 
However, the main problem with the swordfish, and this is why they have to fly in multiples, is because it had so little power that if you wanted to put a torpedo under it, you had to take one of the men out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so unfortunately, because of its lack of power, you did have to take one of those crewmen out. You can't really take the pilot away, and it's really not a good idea to take the gunner away. So you basically lost the navigator. So when these things went to war, often one of them would go in with no ordnance to carry out the attack because it needed to carry a navigator. So you would find that the lead aircraft would carry a navigator and no torpedo. The supporting aircraft would carry the torpedoes. Of course, the problem is then you lose the leader. You've got no nav to get back. Hence, further, the rate of attrition in this truly awful aeroplane. It's like to war with a potato gun. <laughs> that is, in so many ways, that is brilliant. It's also horrifying that we did that. Yeah, it's a story that needs to be told. Yeah. And, you know, they are impressive machines if you go and stand near one and have a look at one and think people went to war in that. One of the benefits of this was it was such a voluminous structure with tube and fabric is you could throw lots of ordnance through it. So they could take a reasonable pounding as long as things went through wings and fuselage. You hit the engine, you hit the people, it's game over. And likewise, you know, they had lots of issues with torpedoes underneath. It's a scary thing to go to war in. I would love the opportunity to fly one now. I'd love the opportunity to fly in the back of one now. I would, God, never want to go to war in one. It looks absolutely horrendous. But Campbell had to. So we find Campbell, based in Malta in November 1941, and he is tasked to go out with his air gunner. So he is carrying a torpedo load and he's not the lead in this. And he was tasked with going out to locate some ships that had been spotted, uh, which they wanted to go and attack. Now, he doesn't really cover his last flight particularly well, in that he basically says, we were unable to locate the ships, and owing to a lack of fuel, we were unable to reach our base. Now, it goes a bit deeper than that. Effectively, the weather was atrocious, and they got lost. So effectively, the Italian convoys at that time were pretty busy. And they were increasing all the time. So through the early part of November, there were more and more Italian convoys passing. So in this occasion, so the 7th of November, 1941, he was part of these four swordfish, which were in the early hours of the morning, which he fails to mention in his report, looking for a 4,000 ton merchant ship, which was 180 miles away from Malta. They were carrying out this over a number of days. And on the November 11th, uh, they had to try and go and look for this large merchant ship and it was blowing a howling gale they ended up heading off into pretty awful weather and the senior pilot who was the leader who had the nav they didn't have any radio communication as i mentioned so they were they were basically relying on basic morse code and basically the weather deteriorated to the point that they were down to 500 feet above the sea in the rain the wind direction was changing and their ground speed was reduced to just 30 knots so 30 knots is a little bit more than you would go through the town center in your car at that's their ground speed flying along so they've gone to war in a ladder yeah pretty ropey one <laughs> the beaten up ladder yeah not not a new one <laughs> oh, no, not, fairly not second. one of those brand new fresh off no rolled. God, no way near no way near <laughs> something that's um, really taken a pounding around the corners of the urals <laughs> that's it um, so sadly they were completely lost they basically spent an hour flying around trying to work out where they were a bit difficult above water in the rain in the dark and canopies on this either no it's that? open cockpit okay. yeah it's completely open <laughs> cockpit. Bonus. and it's november although they are in the mediterranean but i don't think that particularly helps and eventually they saw an island appear they didn't know where that island was so they changed direction and tried to basically find malta effectively their home base they were trying to communicate back by morse to try and get a fix because there was some basic 
radio direction finding equipment, they couldn't get response. So they are stuck above the sea in bad weather and they don't know where to go. Now, at this point, the leader had to basically admit that, well, the quote is, we were in one hell of a situation. So they were lost. There were three relatively inexperienced pilots behind the leader. Effectively, their only prospect was to ditch in pretty rough seas, potentially near an enemy shore. If there was one close, they can't see. They were at 500 feet in the dark in the rain. This went on until they'd been in the air for three and a half hours and they still could not find Malta or any sort of recognisable piece of land. But their rough estimate was that they were potentially nearly 300 miles away from their home base with next to no fuel. So they thought they'd dead reckon it for Sicily. Better to survive and be captured than Mm. never found at all and ditch their planes as close to Sicily as they could. Now, they carried some equipment that they didn't want to get into enemy hands, so they basically spent the next time using their dead reckoning whilst also ditching equipment overboard, which can get captured, and they slowly started to ditch as they ran out of fuel. Now, some were picked up by trawler. In this case, Campbell didn't get picked up by a trawler. They got into their dinghy after they ditched in the water, and for, for some reason, that dinghy would leak, was leaking, and they were facing basically a long swim in a howling gale, which is what they did. They swam ashore to find land. They came into Sicily, effectively, onto a beach, absolutely exhausted, and were captured. Now, turning back to his report, he mentions that they basically started wandering around the countryside looking for food. There were several search parties out looking for them, uh, and the next day, which is the 12th of November, they were picked up by two Italian soldiers. They were taken to the local police station, and there they met the crews of the other three swordfish aircraft that had been on the same mission. The fourth plane was missing. The next day we were taken on to an aeronautical HQ in Palermo where we were given fresh clothes. We were interrogated here and asked about our aircraft, where we had come from and our mission etc. We gave only our numbers, ranks and names. We spent four days in Palermo being housed in a hotel taken over by the Air Force. He then goes on to say on the 16th of November we were transferred to a quarantine camp near Rome. We were each put into a separate room and not allowed to converse with another. A man claiming to be a member of the Red Cross We believed him to be a stool pigeon, which is interesting. Visitors each day. He always carried out his interrogations in the form of a friendly conversation and asked us where we had come from, what mission we were engaged on and the type of aircraft we were flying. He carried with him a notebook containing a good deal of information about Malta, names of squadrons and personnel attached, etc. He said he had obtained this book from an airman who had been shot down in Sicily. Our treatment during the 16 days we were here was reasonable and the food was good. Yeah, so after the quarantine camp on the 2nd of December in 1941, he was transferred to Campo 41, which is in Montalbo. And he was to remain there for quite a while, in fact, over a year, and ultimately leaving in January 1943. Now, he states that during this time, I took part in several tunnel schemes. We suspected a stool pigeon in the camp, as our tunnels were always discovered, one of them being found the day it was completed, which is suspicious, I must admit. Campbell also put forward a scheme of his own to the escape committee which was accepted. Now the plan for that one was that there was a cinema in the campgrounds to which the Italians used to take their wives and although it meant getting past the sentry to reach that from the campsite, the intention was to try and mingle with the crowd as they were leaving for a performance and get out that way. However, he was transferred before he could put the scheme into operation. Now, in January 1943, he was then transferred to Campo 35 in Padula, and he was to remain there from January until July 1943. Now, he does state that he didn't make any escape attempts from this camp because most of the time he was there, he was suffering from stomach trouble. But what is significant about his time there is that is where he overlapped with Kelleher. Ah, right. Okay. So Campbell was in Campo 35 at Padula from January to July 1943, 
Kelleher joined them in April 1943 and both of them were transferred out in July 1943 to Campo 19 in Bologna. So this is where the two strands of these two escapers come together and from here on in, they effectively overlap. Ah, okay. So having arrived in Bologna in July 1943, from then until the 9th of September, they were to be held by the Italians. Now we have covered the Italian armistice. We have. Extensively previously. You can check out any of our previous Italian escapes. And please do. And please do. Yep. Hargis, for example. Yeah, that's Uh, a good one. uh, Sam Derry, was it of course from Italy? Oh, Sam Derry. Yes. With Claire Derry, who came on, his daughter came on and joined us. So that's another Italian escape. Episode 12, Four. I think so, yeah. A fantastic episode. Yeah. So that we've done we have covered Italian escapes fairly extensively, so we won't go back over the armistice, but basically around about early to mid-September, the Italian armistice was signed. Suddenly the Germans appeared and were taking over the camps. POWs were told to stay put. This was not a popular order. So Campbell states that around about 0400 hours on the 9th of September, a bugle was sounded in the camp and the prisoners of war were told the Germans were approaching. As a result of this, there was a mass attempt by the prisoners of war to escape both from the front and back entrances to the camp, which just sounds like a mad scramble as far as I can tell. Yeah, indeed. However, the Germans had already surrounded three sides of the camp and started to fire on them. Now, all of those who were escaping by the front entrance were pushed back by this firing and one Australian army officer was killed and two people were wounded. However, most of those who tried to get out by the back entrance were rounded up and sent back to the camp within a few hours. At dawn the next day, so we're now on to the 10th of September, the Germans set them free into the camp again. Now this is an interesting detail because he states, they apologised for firing at us but said that they'd been informed that we were armed. Interesting. Sounds like a convenient excuse to me. It does. During the next three days we were well treated. When we were told we were to be transferred it was stressed that we were not being taken to Germany but only being moved from the battle area. I have to be honest, I'm not aware that the front was that close to Bologna. So I must admit, this sounds like one of those German excuses where they cover up their true intentions in order to get the mass to acquiesce. So around the 13th of September, they were then moved by truck to the nearby station, and there they were put into cattle trucks, where he states that there were 36 men in each, and they were only allowed to take with them what they could carry. It does state that during the journey, he did try to make two attempts to escape. On one occasion, he tried unsuccessfully to cut a hole in the side, and on the other occasion, he broke away after having filled up his water bottle at a station. However, he'd only gone about the length of the train before he was recaptured. Now, interestingly, Kelleher also tried to make an escape on the train. He wasn't in the same truck, but he tried the same cutting a hole in the side of the truck around the same time. But neither of them succeeded, and neither of them were coordinated. Ah, interesting. Which seems quite long odds, given that they were later to succeed together and that they both had unsuccessful escape attempts. It does appear that Kelleher and Campbell were by no means the only ones to make an escape attempt on these trains. And we have seen that before. Again, returning to Sam Derry, he is one who just jumps. jumps from a train. Yeah. So after the first few prisoners of war had made an escape attempt, a German SS officer came into the truck and said that if anyone else escaped, he would shoot one man in each truck. Again, rarely an empty threat where the SS are involved. Sadly. Captain Johnson, who acted as our interpreter, said that if he did, we would shoot at least 10 Germans for each prisoner of war killed. Seems like much more of an empty threat, if I'm honest, given given the the power balance at this stage. Yes. 
On another occasion, after about 22 prisoners of war had escaped from one truck, the same SS officer had the remaining 10 occupants of that truck lined up in a row and seemed about to shoot them. However, Captain Johnson again intervened and at Bolzano Station, this officer was taken off under arrest. Now that's interesting. Ah, the German officer the was SS taken away. The SS German officer was taken away under arrest for threatening to shoot prisoners of war. That is not a common thing. No, I don't think we've come across that before. No. That I can recall, anyway. So the journey in total took five days, and he states, as the trucks were emptied by more and more prisoners of war escaping... (laughs) 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 Oh, my word. Those of us who were remaining were put in the full trucks. We had about 43 hours before we arrived at our destination. In addition to this, we had all of our luggage with us and each of us had up to two small Red Cross parcels and were allowed to fill our water bottles when the train stopped. At one point, we were in the truck for 24 hours at a stretch. So on the 18th of September 1943, they arrived at Stalag 7A, which is Moosberg. And he says that this camp was mostly populated by Russians, but there were also some Americans, a few Poles, Yugoslavs and Indians. However, he was only to stay there a couple of days, as four days later, on the 22nd of September, he was transferred to Fort Bismarck, which had previously been used as a punishment camp and conditions were very bad. Again, he wasn't to stay long there, because on the 26th of September, so only another four days later, he was sent to Offenburg, which is Stalag 5D. And just over a month later, he was then sent to Marlag und Milag Nord, which is Vestetimka. Now, we have come across this camp before because it is famously the naval camp where the merchant and royal naval seamen were held. We, That's right. For example, we came across it in the escape of Lieutenant David James. That's correct. Bugger off. Bugger off, yeah. yes. Yes, I recall this now, yeah. yes. Now, that does make sense because both these men were in the Navy. And Campbell again says that during the time I was here, I took part in several tunnel escapes. So about January 1944, he submitted a plan to the escape committee, which was accepted. Now, the plan was to leave the camp as a naval officer in the company of a rating with, with orders to join their ship in Rostock. Now, this is where Kelleher gets the first mention in Campbell's escape report, because he states, I asked Lieutenant Kelleher to join me in this scheme. We each had a forged ausweis made in the camps, stating that Campbell was an officer and Kelleher a ship's engineer. We also had a letter purporting to come from an official at Wilhelmshaven to the harbourmaster at Rostock, stating that we were reporting to their ship there. This letter appeared to be typewritten, but in actual fact it was handwritten. Now, I always marvel at the artwork yeah. that these forgers did. It is incredible. Yeah. So the story was that if they'd been caught, they were intending to say that they were taking the place of an officer and seaman who'd been wounded in an air raid. And before leaving the camp, they had had German lessons from a sub-lieutenant Jackson who taught them how to ask for railway tickets to inquire about trains, platforms, that sort of thing. Pretty useful stuff, actually. Yeah, We is. know train travel is the best way to get moving. So Yeah, absolutely. Particularly if you've got good forged papers. Mm. Which then meant that effectively their main difficulty was actually getting out of the camp. So they put up five schemes to the committee, four of which were turned down. So the plan was that the lamps on the perimeter wire were were spaced at 15-yard intervals, and while walking around the camp one evening, Campbell noticed that one of the bulbs had fused, thus leaving about 30 yards of wire in the shadow. I think I see where this is going. I see a glimmer of hope. Mm -hmm. 
So Campbell mentioned this to Sub-Lieutenant McClister and a Lieutenant Taylor, who told me that they'd also already noticed it, but that Campbell and Kelleher could join them by trying to get out at that same spot. So the escape committee mulled it over for quite some time before allowing them to go ahead with the plan because the Germans had become much stricter with their dealings with prisoners of war owing to recent escape attempts. An order had been issued that all prisoners of war to be in barracks by 6 o'clock at night, which is quite early for a curfew. Usually it's around about 9 or 10 o'clock at night in, in these camps. The guards had also been told to shoot anyone seen attempting to escape and that they'd been told that if anyone got away, the guard responsible for that area was liable to be shot. So there's fairly compelling reasons for strict vigilance on the guards' part. Mm -hmm. It was therefore agreed that McClister and Taylor would go first and cut the wire and then if that went well, they would be given a signal and Campbell and Kelleher were to follow after. So the perimeter up wire on the side where they intended to get out was around about 200 yards long. About 15% of the wire that's in pitch darkness. So that's actually not a bad little subsection of the wire that they can target. And at each end of this 200-yard stretch was a searchlight with a machine gun manned by a guard. There was also a sentry on patrol duty along this stretch. The lamp that had fused was about 70 yards from one machine gun and, of course, 130 yards from the other. And they'd arranged for the guards who turned the officers into their barracks or around about 1,800 hours should be engaged in conversation, thus preventing them from completing his rounds. They had also organised for someone to be watching one of the guards at the machine gun post and the plan was that about the time the sentry on patrol duty was approaching the guard manning the other machine gun one or two prisoners of war should try and start an argument in order to distract the guards. Yeah, good distraction. We've seen that time and again, singing, arguing, fisticuffs. Sports matches. In an additional stroke of good luck, the night before they planned to escape, a great many guards were removed from the camp, including the sentry on patrol duty along the perimeter wire. Really very useful. It helps when stuff like that happens. Yeah, it's all a bit dark and there's no one there. Yeah. So on the 22nd of February 1944... They escaped from Marlag und Milag Nord at Vestatimka. So just before 7 o'clock at night on the 22nd of February, McClister cut the perimeter wire and he and Taylor got through within about 7 minutes, which is pretty rapid. That's good going, yeah. Their plan was to make for the Netherlands. Just after that, the searchlight did a beat round the camp and we were then given the word that we could follow on. It took Kelleher and Campbell about a minute to get through the gap and as soon as they were on the other side of the wire, the searchlight flashed along the wire. We lay down flat on the ground and we could see sentries inside the camp and hear dogs barking. In between the searchlights, they crawled about 100 yards along towards a cart track that ran parallel to the perimeter wire for about 200 yards. Beyond this, it was open country, and having reached it, they, they darted into a stable several hundred yards along the track where they were able to tidy themselves up and set off for the nearest station. Now, what I quite like about this is, although they were escaping in disguise, they were, in effect, escaping in disguise in their uniforms because they're dressed up as naval seamen. Absolutely. Not dissimilar to what David James actually did. Correct, yeah. And so they were similarly dressed in naval uniforms, and Campbell, as the officer, had cut gold rank bars onto his cuff. He also wore a merchant seaman's cap from which he'd removed the badge, leaving only the leaf, and over all of that he wore a naval Burberry, which I think I'm right in saying is almost like a trench coat. Yeah. Kelleher, of course, wasn't an officer, so had no stripes on his cuff and didn't wear a hat. They both had 50 marks each, so 100 marks in total, which is, again, not bad. It's not bad. And they also had four cakes, which were provided by the escape committee, which were known as escape cakes. So he does describe what these cakes were made of. They consisted of porridge, margarine, sugar, and cocoa. Now, essentially what they made was high-calorie condensed food here, so that they could go long ways with very little weight. 
provided a lot of energy, but they weren't difficult to carry. They were small, condensed food. Mm. And I must admit, actually, it doesn't sound unpleasant. Now, the only additional detail I can add from having read several Prisoner of War escape books is that while they were highly condensed, high-energy food, they are also extremely dry. Oh. So it, well, then you'll need your Sats coffee to go with it. Well, indeed. In fact, what was quite common was to mix it with warm water and make a sort of porridge with it. This is actually quite an impressive escape kit that they pulled together. They had a shaving kit, a towel, and a bar of soap. They also had a copy of a map showing the railways and roads going to Bremen, another showing the same for Hamburg, Lübeck, Fismar, and Rostock. And they also had a map of the harbour area of Rostock and a large-scale map of the route from Rostock to Danzig. Now, as well as quite an extensive set of maps, that also suggests that, given that Rostock is their primary target, they have also considered a backup route because they have a map of the route from Rostock to Danzig. So it's a very well-prepared escape Mm. kit as well and a very well-prepared escape. So having reached the nearest station, they'd hoped to catch the last train to Bremen, which left at 8 o'clock at night. But when they arrived there, they found that they had missed it. Now, they were anxious to get out of the immediate area before the alarm went off, so they decided to walk to Bremen and try and catch a train to Hamburg, which they thought left at about half past two in the morning. Now, Bremen was only about 30 kilometres away, and they arrived at Bremen at around about 1.30 in the morning, having walked for five hours. Wow. So they have now reached Bremen, but they still have about an hour to wait until the next train. And in fact, in an additional stroke of luck, they were told that the train was running late and would not be leaving until four o'clock in the morning. So after buying a glass of beer, they then spent the night in the waiting room. So they've kind of lucked out a bit here in that while they did miss their initial train from the nearest train station, they've still managed to get to where they need to be. Exactly. And they have a beer. Everyone's a winner here. Everyone's a winner. And we have seen that before, actually. I mean, what would fit in early hours of the morning, you missed your train, have a beer. Yeah. It's basically like airport travel now. So there was no control on the train to Hamburg. So there was no paper checks or anything like that. And they arrived at Hamburg at 7.30 the next morning. Now, they had booked tickets for Rostock. But when they arrived in Hamburg, they saw that a train that was leaving almost immediately for Lübeck. So they decided to catch this train as they were anxious to get clear of Hamburg, which he's already said. So that does kind of make sense. An opportunity presented itself and they decided to take it. Absolutely. Now, on this train, they were asked to produce their Ausweis, which, of course, is the papers. The official did not seem very impressed with them. until Campbell produced the letter that had been forged for them. He was satisfied by this and let them go. And so they got into Lubeck at around about 9 o'clock that morning and went straight to the docks. Now, they immediately went to the unguarded part of the docks and there they saw a Swedish collier. They were unable to board it immediately as there was a sentry walking up and down just in front of it, but they decided to return and try and board it later that night. So they therefore went back to the station and caught a train to Vismar, hoping to catch a train on the single track to Rostock. On arrival at Vismar, they found that there were no trains for Rostock, so they wandered around Vismar and then came back to catch a train to Lübeck, reaching Lübeck at 10 o'clock that night. So having arrived back in Lübeck, they then went back to the harbour, intending to board the ship that they had seen that morning, but found that it had already sailed. And by this time, their feet were extremely sore, so they went to a cafe nearby. At that cafe, they were interrogated by a local German civilian who asked them what, what tram they were waiting for, because this was nearby the tram station. And when they mentioned a local one, they were told that it didn't run, and therefore they couldn't wait where they were. They therefore spent the remainder of that night in an air raid shelter at the station, and during that night, their train tickets and Ausweis were inspected again. Now, they didn't have enough money to get back to Rostock by this stage, so they tore up the forged letter to the harbour master at Rostock that night. Seems quite risky, because at least gave them a bit of cover, even if they weren't actually able to get to Rostock. Yeah. 
it still gave them some form of alibi. At 8 o'clock the next morning, so this is now the 24th of February, so less than two days since they've escaped, they went down to the docks again and there they saw a Swedish ship of 2,000 tonnes in the harbour. Now by this time they were feeling pretty desperate and so they, they decided to try and board her immediately. Walking up the gangplank, they passed the sentry and were met by a ship's officer. Campbell and Kelleher then asked the ship's officer, partly in English and partly in German, if they could come aboard. Now he said no, so they left the ship, but they returned every two hours to see that it had not sailed. They then spent the day trying to find something to eat and somewhere they could rest, managing to secure one couponless meal that, that they describe as quite inedible. The mind boggles. Yeah. When you're hungry, I'd have thought most things could be edible, but it, if it yeah. was quite inedible, it's pretty bad. Yeah. However, we are talking about February 1944, so I can't imagine the supplies that were coming into Germany were extensive or high quality, yeah. Mm. So apart from a little beer, they had nothing else that day. However, there were three air raid alerts that day, and on each occasion we were sent down to the shelters. So about six o'clock that night, they discovered that the ship that they'd spotted earlier had gone over to the guarded part of the harbour, which was wired off. Now, as it was getting dark, they decided to try and get into this area under the cover of darkness, and at the main gate they had to show their vice again. Now, the guard did ask them which ship they were trying to get to, and they just basically made one up. So he said that they had to have a letter from the harbour control officer, and the guard started to take them off to his office. However, someone managed to distract the guard's attention, and they managed to get away. They then tried to get someone to row them across the harbour, but on each occasion they were told that it was verboten. So after this, they took a ferry that went to a shipbuilding area on the other side of the harbour, hoping that they could reach the boat from that side. However, they found that this was not possible and came back by the same ferry. So they seem to sort of be darting around the harbour, but not quite able to get on a ship that will take them to Sweden. So after this, they then noticed the concrete platform at the end of a footbridge leading to the guardhouse. Now at dusk, they tried to effectively climb over this platform but fortunately they weren't spotted despite there being a German minesweeper only 50 yards away. So having climbed up some steps onto a wharf, they then made for some coal trucks and keeping to the shadows, they managed to reach the Swedish ship. Now, as they reached the last of these coal trucks, they heard a sentry cough, which was another stroke of luck because it meant that they were able to wait in the shadows and five minutes later, the guards moved along his beat and they were able to nip up the gangway onto the ship. Having arrived on board the ship, they then entered a door leading into the kitchen quarters of the officer's mess and there saw two women, a matron and a stewardess. So having burst into the kitchen where this matron and stewardess were located, they asked them if they could help them, telling them that they were British naval officers. Unfortunately, Campbell and Kelleher couldn't understand them all that well, which suggest they might actually be Swedish, which mm -hmm. is very helpful. And one of them went off to fetch a ship's officer who spoke fairly good English. The officer said that they did not dare help them as if they were caught they would be shot and he tried to persuade them to leave the ship. However, one of the women spoke to him and he told Campbell and Keller to wait. He then went off and returned with the cook who also spoke English. Now the cook said that he was willing to help them as the Navy had saved his life when the ship had been sunk. Oh, convenient. However, the cook did also point out that it was extremely high risk and if they were caught, they would all be shot. Now, at this particular moment in time, the ship was still being loaded up with coal and was not due to leave for another five days. And that's quite a long time to wait. It is. For two nights, we were locked in the cook's cabin and for three nights, we slept in the matron's cabin while she slept in the double bunk with the stewardess. They were then told that they were expecting a search on board as it had been discovered that some of the coal had been stolen. So at about four o'clock in the morning on the 27th of February, the cook took them to an engine room where they were hidden by a friend of his, one of the engineers. In order to be hidden, they had to lie on the floor in one and a half inches of water, under a boiler, 
with a clearance of just 18 inches to the boiler. Oh, no. Which I imagine was... Awful. Yeah. They then remained in this position for 70 hours. 70, 70. 70. So nearly three days. Wow. And during that time, they were fed twice. The things you endure for freedom. Yes. The ship then sailed on the 29th of February. While it was searched, he does state that it was not very thoroughly searched, as she was just about to leave at the moment it was searched. They therefore remained under the boiler for a further 14 hours after the ship had sailed, and during that time the water had dried up and the heat became unbearable. Oh god. I can't say I'm shocked. No. They therefore came up on deck at 10 o'clock on the night of the 29th of February, so a leap year, and were taken to the crew's quarters. Here the cook had laid on hot water for us to wash and also provided some food. He said they were not to see the captain until 10 o'clock the next day, and even then they were not to mention that they'd seen anyone on board or had been helped in any way. The cook told them that they had to tell the captain that they had boarded the ship and gone straight to a small chart room that was never used. They therefore met the captain at 10 o'clock the next morning, so we're now at the 1st of March, 1944, and both our bodies and clothes were still coal black and he offered us a bath. After that, we told him who we were, but he said he did not want to know anything about us as it was better he should know nothing as he would need to return to Germany. It does make sense. It is his livelihood. Yeah, absolutely. All he's doing is trading. Yeah. But also is protecting himself because the less he knows, the less he can reveal. Mm. So it's, it's security for both the prisoners of war, but also for the ship's crew. The captain then gave them some dry clothes and fixed them up with a cabin, and that he would try and take them to Stockholm if possible. They therefore arrived at Stockholm on the 2nd of March and were handed over to the police immediately. After five hours at the police station, they were then handed over to the authorities at the British legation in Stockholm. So more than two years after either of them were captured, they finally made it back to neutral Sweden. And it took them just nine days from escaping. Bear in mind that they'd spent five of that in the harbour. Yeah. It's taken them only nine days to get to Stockholm, which is very impressive. It is indeed, yeah. I did actually get a little bit of info on them. Some of it's conflicting. I found one of these football history website, which claims that Kelleher, upon returning to the UK, went straight back to playing football, quoting three days after returning to the UK, he was back on the football pitch. Now, I thought that was a bit far-fetched because you would have thought he needs to give his report and probably even get checked over, maybe, to make sure he's okay. Do a medical. Uh, Do a medical, yeah, before returning things. Now, there's actually a bit of follow-up from Campbell, who describes the situation a bit clearer. He said they were flown to Scotland, as we know, coming back into Lucas. As they were travelling down to London by train, someone saw them in their civilian clothes and assumed they were shirking military service and handed them a white feather. Really? Interesting point. They then go on to say that the Admiralty required them to stay in London for debriefing on what they had learned about Germany during their escape. It goes on to say that one night in particular, Campbell left his hotel during an air raid to go and help rescuers, returned to find a bomb had fallen on his hotel, killing everyone inside. The result of that was, the next day, was that Campbell's family was told he was dead. Oh, really? Yeah. So that caused a bit of consternation. So, yeah, I find it a little bit strange that Kelleher would have gone... I mean, whilst, yes, he would have been in London and available to go and play for Barnet, one would have thought, actually, the priority at the time was giving his report. I mean, that is in and of itself quite interesting because during the war, the entire league was suspended. So no official games were played at all. There were matches that were played for entertainment. Okay. As it was described now. Morale boosting. Yes, exactly. And quite often that did involve professional players. Now, Kelleher was an amateur. It's not quite the same thing, but it did sometimes involve professional players who were often called up to the services. 
Well, they'd be fairly fit and healthy, so one would assume that they'd make good stock for military men. Yes, and the, and even in some cases were employed as PT. Oh, yeah, makes sense. Matt Busby would be a good example of this, who was a, one of the greatest ever managers. So while there were games that involved, so you might get Chelsea versus Arsenal, it wouldn't have been a team that would have been recognised by a pre-war fan, but it was a way, as you say, of maintaining a morale-boosting presence, sometimes keeping servicemen fit by just putting on games. So it's not impossible that he did go and play at Barnet, but I think it's extremely unlikely that it was in any way, shape or form an official match. Or potentially within three days, maybe a week or so would make more sense, I would say. So I did find a little bit more about him. He obviously did fairly well. I mean, he carried on playing for Barnet into the 1950s. I've got here that he played 358 games for them. He represented Great Britain three times, mm-hmm. uh, including at the Olympics in 1948. And I've got here, there was some conflicting stuff. He passed away in the 2000s. I've got one statement saying February 2002. I found another one saying November 2004. But he lived a long and healthy life, it seems. Campbell, a little bit more difficult. I have found a website uh, which looks to have been set up by Campbell's son. It doesn't give us so much detail on the rest of his life. It covers a lot of his naval service, which is excellent. But what it does do, and what I really like, is it actually gives a little note on him as a person. Great. Uh, and an experience from, from around the table, so to speak, which is we like. Cause we, we, we can assume their personalities from how they carried out their escape and conducted themselves, but to actually get a quote about them is good. So probably we'll finish... Mm-hmm. with this when he says that when Campbell returned from the war he was for a while a totally different person he went berserk and took about a year to recover even as a child he had hated to be confined and would often slip out the bedroom window even when his father had kept him indoors the prisoner of war experience must have affected him severely I remember a supper time conversation with my father when I asked him if he thought he would have benefited from counselling after his escape I wondered if he'd be dismissive but instead he said yes without hesitation my mother was very surprised that is an extremely interesting quote, of course, from someone who grew up with him. I think that does come out in his report, even as a child, didn't like being confined. The fact that Campbell, unlike Keller, did make repeated escape attempts, was involved with every tunnel scheme going, as far as I can tell, that certainly does bear out. And even just from his report, there seems to be a certain degree of restlessness about him that I think also comes through almost running to the escape committee with every single idea that you can come up with, which is great for us. But I, I feel that does come across in his report and his escape attempts, just that restlessness, that unwillingness to be confined, and also the impact that having to lie underneath a red-hot boiler for... 14 hours more, after having already laid there for three days. Yeah, must have really taken its toll on him, but... The prize of freedom that must have by that point been quite tantalising must have borne them through, but the psychological impact of that must have been also quite a heavy one for him, I would imagine. So I think that is a great escape. I think it's brilliant. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. And two extremely interesting, very different characters, but two extremely interesting characters. And actually Kelleher had an interesting story to tell as well. A footballer in his own right played for Barnet hundreds of times. And actually, what I do find interesting about he played for both Ireland before the war and Great Britain after the war. Hmm. Given that he was born in 1918 in Ireland, but of course, after the Easter Uprising, but before the establishment of the Irish Free State in 1922, quite possibly was eligible to play for both countries. The rules back then were also very different, but I do find it quite interesting that he, given the political 
context of these two countries that he did play for both Ireland and Great Britain and particularly in the Olympics which of course back then the rules around amateur status were much stricter than they are now the fact that he did remain an amateur while playing for Barnet is also quite an interesting touch as well indeed and I think what's particularly interesting is we have two naval officers Mm -hmm. two very different backgrounds Mm -hmm. two very different parts of the navy who came together and successfully got home through what was actually quite a strenuous and tolling escape effort it would have taken it out of them well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on apple itunes google podcast or indeed any of your favorite podcast platforms or you can find us on twitter and facebook by searching at f-y-t-w-i-o or if you want to send us a more long-form message you can email us at f-y-t-w-i-o podcast at gmail.com